turned to Acts, and I was thinking AX. And I didn't know there was a book called ACTS. In most Bibles, it's the Acts of the Apostles is the name of the book or the name of that record. Um, it's written by the same one that it was written by Luke, and it was written to the same person that Luke wrote his gospel to, a person by the name of Theophilus. Um, it is really the acts of the Spirit through the apostles. Another way of putting it is it's the acts of the risen Christ through his disciples because the things that are done in the book of Acts are not things that men can do. They're things that only God can do. They're done by the Spirit. They're done by Christ through the Spirit. And we're going to just read a few verses at the beginning of chapter 18 and look at a few things uh, in these verses a little while tonight. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Just a word, Corinth is, of all the churches who were written letters in the Bible, Corinth may have been the most problematic. <laughs> most of the epistles were written to churches or to churches in cities because they had some issues or some problems. The letter to the Galatians addressed legalism. The letter to the Corinthians addressed so many issues it would be hard to remember. And I never forget one time I saw a songbook that had been donated to a prison and the, it had stamped on it, Corinth Baptist Church. And I thought, what a terrible name to name your church. That would be like, I preached a Bible conference in Broadway Baptist Church. And I thought, well, the Broadway is the way that leads to destruction, you know. But that was the street that it happened to be on. And there is a Corinth, Mississippi. So it might have been from Corinth. But I thought I would never name my church Corinth Baptist Church or Broadway Baptist Church. But anyway, this church had some problems. And this is the story of how this church came into, into being through the ministry of Paul. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, <clears throat> Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. 
But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, <coughs> Excuse me, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. We'll stop there, and we'll look at a few things in these verses in our study for a little while tonight. Well, as I said, I love the book of Acts, and I love it for a number of reasons. Um, but one of the main reasons I love it is because it gives us the only, for certain, reliable record that we have of the ministry of the apostles <clears throat> and the ministry and the work of God in the days of the early church. There's some tremendous things in the book of Acts, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the miracles that were performed by the apostles, miracles that were on the, on the scale of some of the miracles that Jesus did. But to me, when I read through the book of Acts, the most amazing thing that happens in the book of Acts is not the miraculous events that God did through the apostles, but the most amazing thing to me in the book of Acts is that they would go into a pagan city, a pagan society, a pagan culture, preach the gospel, and when they left, there would be a thriving Christian church left behind. And it always encourages me because sometimes you look at the world you're living in and you think the gospel, or we shouldn't, but maybe in some sense we think, well, the gospel doesn't work anymore. It does work. The power, it's the power of God unto salvation. And it's wonderful when you read how that these apostles would go to some pagan culture, some pagan society, preach the gospel, the Spirit of God would work, and sinners would be transformed, and churches would be birthed and formed. And that's the way churches are brought into being, if they're real churches, is they are birthed as a work of God and by the Spirit of God. And no one could do this like Paul the Apostle. If I could hear any preacher in the world preach, if I had a list, well, who would you like to hear preach, you know, more than any other preacher? Well, I would, number one, have loved to heard Jesus preach. But number two would be Paul. I would have loved to have heard the preaching of Paul the Apostle. Number three would have probably been Spurgeon, you know. But I would have loved to hear, you know, I would have loved to have sat under the preaching of Paul the Apostle. And here's one of the reasons why. Because Paul did not claim to be eloquent. He did not claim to be gifted in speech. And what made him a powerful preacher was not human giftedness. It was the work of the Spirit. It was that God's hand was upon him, that he was sent by God, he was anointed by God, and God was working through him, even though he was not using any kind of you know, methods other than just the simple preaching of the gospel and the Spirit of God working you know, through him. And we have an example of it here in this chapter in the founding of this church at 
Corinth. This We have just a little glimpse here of his Corinthian ministry. And there's just a few things I wanted to talk to you about for a little while tonight. And then we'll have prayer and we'll depart. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. First of all, the first thing we're told about his ministry in Corinth is that he worked. Is that he worked. We're told he leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth, and he finds Aquila and Priscilla. And because they are of the same trade, tent makers, that he was, he joined himself to them. And we're told that he worked. He had a job. And he worked during the week. And we're told that he preached the word in, on the Sabbath day, but I'm sure that he was always preaching the word at every opportunity that he had. His connection to these two people, this married couple, was a double blessing. First of all, he had the blessing of spiritual fellowship with them because they were believers. But secondly, he had the blessing of being able to make you know, a living. He was able to work and able to work with them and they were able to be you know, provided for through their labors in that tent-making business that they shared in. So his connection to this couple was kind of a two-fold blessing to him. Through his connection to them, he was able to work and provide for his material means, but also through his connection to them, he was able to have spiritual fellowship and to share with them the true partnership, which is the greatest partnership of all, the partnership that believers share in the faith. He worked to meet his material needs, and he worked so that he could minister the Word of God. Now, that's something that you know we need to think a little bit about. The Bible makes it plain that we're to care for our ministers and that we're to provide for their needs. But a minister who works is not a second-class minister. Now, you may say, well, you're saying that because you happen to be one of those but honestly, they're, they're, over the years, every once in a while, I've come across this in, among ministers that, you know, if you, let, let's say if you happen to be a farmer and a preacher, if you happen to be a, a carpenter and a preacher, or if you were owned a business and you were a preacher, it was somehow like there was this unspoken thing that you felt like maybe that they thought that you were kind of some kind of second class minister. I've known many ministers who were able to devote all of their time and all of their energy to a particular church, a particular ministry, or to the preaching of the gospel. And in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that if that's God's will for them and if God has blessed that congregation where they're able to do that. But there's nothing wrong with just, you know, going to work. Me and Brother Miller was talking, best message I've ever heard Brother Miller preach, none of y'all heard it. Now, you've heard a lot of his messages, and some of you have heard more than others. But I'll tell you, the best message he ever preached, I'm the only one that heard it. Because I was talking to him driving up the road one day, and he began to talk about missions, and he he began to talk about young preachers. And he said, whatever happened to the days when a man would get a burden from God to go to a city, start a church, and he would go there, move his family there, get a job, go to work, and he would work during the day, and he would preach at night or he would work during the day and preach on Sunday and he would start a church. Now many of the greatest churches in America, that's how they were started. By someone that had a burden, someone that God had called, someone that God had moved in their life. And they didn't have a mission board behind them and they didn't have a denomination behind them. And they just went and whatever gifts they had that enabled them to provide for their family, they would go to that city, 
move there, they would settle down, they would go to work, and they would preach, and they would preach the gospel, and God would begin by the work of the Spirit to build a church. Now, you know, sometimes, uh, maybe in certain circumstances, it would be impossible to do that. And we support missionaries. We, we, we're for that. We're not against that. I'm not against that. And, you know, I wouldn't, if, a, if the Lord sent someone here and God had called them to go to some city and start a church and we felt like it was God's will for us to financially support them to do that, I would be all for that. I'm not against that. But it's interesting to me that the greatest preacher that ever lived, other than Jesus, he went to work. He went, he, he went to town, and then he joined up with some people that had the same trade that he had, and we're told that he, he worked. And, you know, nobody cares, <laughs> but if I could talk to young preachers, if I could, you know, I'm, I used to be a young preacher, and I've not forgotten it, but I'm not a young preacher anymore. But if, but if I could talk to young preachers, I would love to tell them, there's a few things I'd love to tell them. And one of them is I would love to tell them that the call to minister, the call to be a preacher is a call to work. And it's also a call to sacrifice. And it's also a call to serve. You know, and, and you know, it, I've heard preachers say, well, I resigned my church. Why would you resign my church? Well, it was too far to drive. Well, if God sent you there, it's not too far to drive. Right? Well, I resigned my church. Why'd you resign your church? Well, because it, you know, I was just I'm working. I have a job and doing that, and I'm just, I'm just exhausted. The call to preach is a call to serve. It's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to work. It's you know, you got to be, and, and it's not just working at a job, but also to work in the Word, to study, to to labor, and and uh, you know famous thing I read one time about Spurgeon and I'd heard it that Spurgeon never knew usually on Saturday morning what he was preaching on Sunday and he never knew on Sunday after after church on Sunday Sunday morning he never knew what he was preaching at night but people would come and his wife would you know bring people to the home and they would have visitors on Saturday but everyone knew, and she would make sure they knew that they had to leave at a certain time because he had to get along with God. And, you know, he had to be alone with God and seek the face of God about what he was going to be preaching the next Lord's Day morning. So, you know, um, I, I love what Brother Miller said one time about expository preaching. He said it's better to get up on Sunday morning and have something to say than to get up and have to say something. <laughs> which is very wise and uh, and and I and let me tell you something if you a, a preacher knows that Saturday night fever is not a movie with John Travolta in it it's the shape the preacher's in on Saturday night if you don't know what he's preaching on Sunday morning that's 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 the shape he's in he's got the fever he's worried what am I going to do and he's seeking God's face and but but a call to preach is a call to work. And it may mean working a job and preaching. It may be working a job and pastoring. You say, well, I couldn't work a job and, and do that. And Well, you can, and God will make a way for you. God's blessed me my whole ministry with having employers who always understood if I had to preach a funeral or if there was some church emergency or something that I had. To, I've, I've been blessed with that my whole life because God makes a way. And God will provide. But Paul, his hands, uh, 
his hands were not only held up preaching the gospel, his hands were busy laboring to provide for his material needs. Um, and also, I will say this, in Scripture, like the Philippian church sent offerings to Paul to provide for him and to help him. But that was, you know, wasn't something that he really, he took the school testament for verification of the things that he is writing and proclaiming to them in the New Testament or under the New Covenant. So he preached, he explained the scripture. What is preaching? That's a great question. What is preaching? Uh, It's not ranting or raving. It's not emotionalism. It's not manipulating people and getting decisions out of people that are that are here today and gone tomorrow. It's opening up the Word of God and explaining to people what God has said to us in His Word. It's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's it's doing it from the Scripture. And this is what Paul was doing. This was his greater work. The tent making was his lesser work. The reason he was there was to preach. And the tent making was secondary. That was so he could eat. But he was there so that he could be proclaiming the word of God among the people there. And this is the reason that he stayed there. I mean, you see it. You see it basically three times. Verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. What is it? Verse uh, Five, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with what? The word. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And then verse 12, or verse 11, I'm sorry. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So that was his ministry. His ministry was the preaching of the Word of God, and that's why he was there. His secondary thing was tent making, and that was just so he could be there and stay there so that he could preach the Word of God. He consistently explained the Word of God from the Scriptures, and he did it for a long time. He did it he did it to the he did it in the he did it in the synagogue until that fell apart when he walked off from them because they rejected finally. It was like he, he no longer would cast his pearls before swine. But even after that, he went somewhere else to another person's home and he preached the word. Number three, he involved other workers in his ministry. Now we are not told specifically, but we have to assume that in verse five, Silas and Timothy come and what are they going to do they're going to help aren't they both of them timothy timothy is like uh, timothy's like um, a younger man that paul is kind of his mentor in the ministry we have two letters in the new testament that paul was moved by the holy spirit to write to timothy and timothy was written to from paul as a younger minister in need of instruction and in need of encouragement. So, you know, Timothy is there and 
In one place, Paul said he had no one like Timothy because all other people seemed to seek their own affairs but and not the things of Jesus Christ. But he, he, he had complete confidence in Timothy's walk with God. And Silas was also another great helper and companion with the Apostle Paul. He included others in the work. And the New Testament makes this clear. Whenever you read through the New Testament, you discover that Paul was not a lone ranger. He was not just there alone, but he would often have helpers in the work. And there would be other men that were called and other men that were gifted and other men that were sent by God. And he would mentor them, but he would also... Um, he would also allow them to take part in the ministry uh, and to preach along with him and to minister to the saints just as he also ministered to the saints. And, and that's a great lesson for it's a great lesson for ministers, but it's also a great lesson for churches because uh, you know everybody's everybody's everybody doesn't hear the same voices. What I mean by that is sometimes God may use one man in a certain context that he would never use another man. I, this is maybe a bad way of illustrating this or a poor way of illustrating it. When I was young, everybody assumed I would be good with young people. Well, he's a young preacher. He ought to work with the young people. That wasn't me. It wasn't my thing. And uh, not that I dislike young people. I happen to have been one at one time. But I never felt like I was that, you know, some, because I was a young preacher, that somehow, you know, because when I was young, I was old in my, you know, the way I thought about things and, and the way I, especially in my understanding of preaching and things like that, you know. So, um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical, I'm just trying to say that you know, not everybody hears every voice the, the same. Ruth and I watched a movie about the beginning of the Calvary Chapel movement here a while back. And, uh, I mean, they was just a bunch of daggone hippies, weren't they? I mean, but it was wonderful how God worked among them. I mean, I have no doubt that it was God, and God was working, but God was using, you know, people in a different context that probably I could have never communicated with or may have never been able to have, to have reached. But it's wonderful to me that Paul used the gifts and callings of other men to help him in the ministry. And, <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of math, isn't it? Aren't three, three people speaking in three different places better than one person speaking in one place? It's kind of math. You know, well, we could have three meetings in three homes instead of one meeting in one home, and we would be preaching the gospel, the same gospel, but different ministers in different places and reaching more people with the gospel. So he involved workers in the work. Number four, he faced warfare. He just he didn't he never got a break, did he? <laughs> he never went to town there, but he never went to town and it was in the newspaper that they were glad he was there. He never it never happened for the apostle Paul. <clears throat> We're told in this text that he faced opposition, so the Jews opposed him. He was reviled, which means he was despised, you know. He was spoken ill of, you know, he was reviled. And we're told that he was attacked. Those are three things that we're told about him and his ministry in Corinth. His 
opposition came from who? The Jews who were offended by the gospel. They were, they were offended by the offense of the cross. And the offense of the cross is this. It is offensive to religious, moral people to be confronted with the truth that they're not moral enough, that they're not good enough, that they're not religious enough, that their law-keeping and their Phariseeism or their Sadduceeism is not enough, and that their connection to their history as Jews and their practices involved with Judaism are not enough, and that all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, and they must come down off of their throne of pride and bow to the King of Kings and be saved by that lowly carpenter who went to a cross and died for sinners. And that is the offense of the cross. And the Jews were highly offended by this message. So offended that basically it seems like it when you read the ministry of Jesus and the Gospels or you read the ministry of Paul. It was either conversion or all-out war, right? They either were born again, convicted and born again, or they rioted. You know, it was basically the way it always seemed to work. He was in a spiritual warfare. And, you know, eventually this moved him to leave the synagogue where he was teaching on the Sabbath day and to go to another person's house. And he did so dramatically, didn't he? He shook his clothes <laughs> Kind of like Jesus was, you know, said, knock the dust off your feet if they won't receive you. He shook his clothes and said, I'm innocent. Your blood is on your own heads. And I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he went to Justice's house and began to preach the gospel there. But he faced this everywhere. Everywhere he went, he faced it. But he wasn't crippled by it. He wasn't silenced by it by the way what what the enemy in persecution always seeks to do is silence the church silence the gospel intimidation is a method to silence and to try to force conformity to a certain way of thinking and we see it all the time in our culture it's rampant in our culture. But he faced warfare. And I would tell young men, if you can't take you hide being tanned, you don't need to be this is not don't don't think you're gonna be you can't minister and be faithful to your calling to preach the word of God and not face opposition and it being offensive. It's it's part of it. And um <clears throat> So he faced warfare. Three more and I'm done. He experienced wonderful blessing. Isn't it wonderful we're told of the conversion of a whole family of people? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, is converted. Um, but not only him, his family. 
the whole family saved. And then we're told that many others were saved as well in Corinth. So God was at work. The Spirit was at work. And this is the thing. The opposition is mitigated, or at least the opposition's effect upon you is mitigated when you see the Spirit working, calling people, saving people, changing people, bringing people to life. And, you know, Paul experienced the wonderful blessing that comes when the Spirit of God works through the preaching of the Word and calls people out of their sins into eternal life. And we have this with, and you got to understand, Christmas, Christmas was a ruler of the synagogue, so he would have been steeped in Judaism, and yet God rescued him. And God brought him out of it and his whole family as well. But it's not just him. So what you have here is you have Jews being saved and you have Gentiles being saved. And isn't that just like the Lord? Isn't it just like the Lord that he saves people from different religious backgrounds, from different cultures and different societies, and he brings them into his church when he shows them his grace? So he experienced trouble, but he also experienced blessing. He experienced persecution, but he also saw God use the preaching to bring about the salvation of sinners for the glory of God's great name. Another thing, he experienced wonderful consolation. Now, Paul was human. And because Paul was human, it's fair to assume, especially when you look at this text, that he was afraid. Because the Lord, we're told, appears to him one night in a vision in verse 9 and says, don't be afraid. Now when the Lord does that, it's probably because he can read our hearts and he knows we're afraid, right? Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent because the Opposition was trying to silence him. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. What consoling words. Here's basically what the Lord tells him. You don't have to be afraid. Because I'm right here with you. And as you're preaching, I'm standing beside you. Don't be silent. And don't be afraid of what they might do to you. Because I'm with you. And by the way, I have people here. Now, I've wondered what that means. And here's what I think it means. And you you might think I'm wrong. I don't think he's just saying there's some Christians here. I think he's saying there are people here that I'm going to to save there are people here that I'm going to call to myself there are people here that I'm going to use you in the preaching of the gospel through you to bring them from death to life you stand your ground keep speaking keep preaching don't be afraid I'm with you I'll protect you I'll take care of you I have a purpose for you being here and that consoled him because we're told right after that he stayed there a year and six months, you know, because he he had heard he'd been consoled, he had been strengthened by consolation from God. 
Then lastly, and I like this because I like it. He experienced a providential protection because the Jews all unite. If they can't agree on anything, they can agree on trying to destroy Paul. So they all unite and bring him to the government. And how typical of a government official that he says, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything about this. And, and, and his reasoning is sound. He, he's saying, you know, if it was, if he committed some crime or done something wrong, well, then it would be my responsibility to hear this. But he said, I think, I think essentially what he's saying is, you Jews are always up in the air about something. You're always worked up about something. And it's always about your law. And, and, and I love the way he puts it. He said, it's, if, if it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, you take care of that. I'm not, I'm not even going to hear the case. What's interesting is Paul was getting ready to make his defense and he doesn't, he doesn't even have to say a word in his own defense because the, gov the governor or the, the proconsul, he just basically says, nah, I'm not, I'm not even going to listen to it. I'm not going to hear it. I'm not going to make a judgment. I'm not going to make a determination. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and that God in his providence protected Paul through a government official that was completely indifferent to Christianity or Judaism. But Paul was protected by God's providence through an unbelieving government official who, like so many government officials, is just waiting for retirement and he's not going to do his job, if that was his job, because he said it wasn't his job. Also, another thing about government officials is it's never their job, it's someone else's job. Which is also, point number eight, a reminder that men never change. And things never change. Nothing new under the sun. Well, and as a word of qualifying statement, if... There are any government employees who heard this, please do not take offense <laughs> at my, what I think are funny remarks, but you may not. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the pictures you draw for us and the records that are given to us in scripture. How wonderful, how sweet they are. I could never be a Paul, but help me to follow his pattern. For the sake of my own testimony, the church, and the ministry, thank you, Lord, for what you did through his life and help us to follow in his footsteps and receive your blessing. Amen.